Hello. Welcome to Jane and Jesus, where my guests and I talk about all things Jane Austen, and I talk a little about Jesus. A lot of people don't know that Jane Austen was a serious Christian and that her novels have a lot to teach us about not only the Christian faith, but also general life wisdom, too. I'm your host, Karen Swallow Pryor, and today I'm joined by Vanessa Zoltan, co-host of the legendary podcast Harry Potter and the Sacred Text and recent author of Praying with Jane Eyre. This episode, we'll be focusing on Kitty Bennett, one of the most forgettable and overlooked characters in Pride and Prejudice. Yet that is the very thing, I think, that makes her so relatable to many of us. And that kind of obscurity, as Vanessa knows well, is just the quality that asks us to seek the sacred in the ordinary. Here's our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Vanessa Zoltan, author of Praying with Jane Eyre. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. You are an atheist Jew. I am a Southern Baptist. <laughs> I think the Bible is God's inerrant, plenary, inspired word, and that's what makes that text sacred. And in your stellar book, Praying with Jane Eyre, you state that what makes something sacred is what we do with it. And somewhere in between the two of us, we both believe that reading any good text like Jane Eyre, like Pride and Prejudice, can be a sacred practice. And you write that this sacred practice involves learning from the text, not about it, and having faith that the text has something to say whether or not we get it right away or understand it right away. So can you talk just a little bit more about how reading a good book well can be a sacred act? Absolutely. It would depend on how you define God's love. But one of the ways that I find compelling in the definition of God's love is the idea that there's something that sees you, right? The true you, the vulnerable you, the you that is not quite understandable to the people around you because we cannot communicate everything about ourselves and we are to some extent unknowable. And there's something about reading a book that was written by someone who you don't know, maybe hundreds of years ago, maybe thousands of miles away, and they have been able to articulate a deep inner thought that resonates with you and that you feel as though, ah, they have seen this vulnerable part of me that I have never been able to share with anybody else before that I just truly believe has to feel similar to feeling God's love, that there's a connection between you and someone who no longer exists, and that the only way that you could communicate this to one another was through fiction, was through making up a story, through the imagination. That, to me, just feels like one of the great human endeavors that we desperately need to make up allegories and metaphors in order to communicate with one another the depths of our emotions. And another thing you say in your book, and we'll get to Pride and Prejudice, but there's just so much else I want to talk about first. You also talk about how treating a text as something sacred teaches us how to treat other human beings as sacred. And I love that. What do you mean by saying that? Well, I think you obviously know this as someone who loves Pride and Prejudice, right? These texts are not perfect by any means. So to love a text 
deeply is to be betrayed by it, to wonder, well, where did Darcy get all of his money? And yes, he's this great guy, but isn't he exploiting his tenants? And what imperialist activities (laughs) allowed him to have all of this money, right? Like, and why are we okay with all of that being invisible in the text? And we love it anyway. And that is not because we forgive him or absolve him of the sins. It is because love is complicated. And I think that that is also true of our neighbors, right? If we practice radically loving a text, we will better be able to radically love our neighbors when they betray us by like mowing the lawn at seven o'clock on a Saturday morning or whatever it is. And the other thing is, you know, Virginia Woolf said that imagination is an act of nonviolence and that if we were truly able to imagine the psyche of someone on the other side of a front, of a, you know, war front, we would never be able to kill them. That really resonates with me. And that is not a perfect empathy. That is inventing a story about someone else, right? You do not know the person, but you're saying, oh, they probably have a parent who cares about them or a dog who cares about them. If we deeply engage in the practice of radical imagination, I think we would have to see the humanity in one another more readily and therefore would not be able to, you know, watch our neighbors suffer without reaching out a hand. That's so powerful. And that is all the apologetic we need for reading fiction. So our work here is done. No, not really. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, everyone read fiction and that we have to read it with intention and with criticism. But like, yeah, read fiction. Just like we engage with real people with intention and criticism. Exactly. Right. Right. It's good practice. So speaking of fiction, again, even before we get to Pride and Prejudice, I would be so remiss if I didn't talk about you and Harry Potter. So (laughs) you are famous for one of the world's most popular podcasts about Harry Potter. Why Harry Potter? How does Harry Potter do what you just have been talking about doing with sacred practices? Harry Potter is special in a number of ways, I think. One is just sort of when it was born and when it came into the world. It came into the world right as the internet was becoming accessible more widely. There were message boards and people were guessing about what was going to happen next. And it was just like the great cultural phenomenon that was happening as the internet was rising with it. And therefore, from its inception, a community was forming around it. And because the internet, to some extent, was in its nascency, there wasn't community around a bunch of other things. It was this last moment of monoculture that people could be bonding over in a bigger way than they've ever been able to. So there's just something like incredible about the moment. And because of that, there is the second facet, which is its ubiquity. And so, you know, I was like standing on a street in Oregon and I was wearing a Harry Potter themed T-shirt. And this kid came out and was like, what house are you in? And like, I had nothing in common with this kid. I was like visiting a friend of a friend. Right. And like immediately he and I got into this pretty in-depth conversation about the virtue of courage or the virtue of kindness and which one is more important and why. And there's just something about the fact that like I could be in India and like see, even though Slytherin is called something different in Hindi, I could like recognize the colors in the snake and like have something to bond over with someone who has a totally different reality than I do. J.K. Rowling has really hurt her fans by spreading transphobic misinformation. 
And yet I feel like the text is ours. And she, I think by being so difficult to engage with in these last few years, has really given us the gift of forcing ourselves to read her books more critically than ever. And they are, like any other book, not perfect. There is fat shaming in them. And there's a lot of insidious racism in them. And, you know, like they're they're not perfect texts. But I think that that is also one of the gifts of them is that it allows us to talk critically about things that matter to us and figure out where the good is. You've touched on so many interesting things there, especially for me, who specializes in the 18th and 19th century and writers like Jane Austen, just how tightly connected technology is to literature and how literature develops alongside technology. And Harry Potter is a perfect example of that and how the text is, and you talk about this in your book, is not the same as the author and yet both offer us an opportunity to engage, to think, to grow, to be empathetic. And again, another quote that I love from your book that you talk about from one of your professors who says that love is stronger than death. And there's so many ways we need to be reminded of that literature and their imperfect authors are good reminders of that as well. So diving into Pride and Prejudice, we're focusing this episode on the sort of overlooked and often maligned character of Kitty Bennett. It's interesting because you're accomplished and you have obviously a strong sense of yourself. And then here we are talking about Kitty Bennett in Pride and Prejudice, who's a person who does spend most of her time in the novel in the shadow of everyone else, and in particular, her sibling, Lydia Bennett, who outshines her. Even our introduction to her is through her ill-timed coughs, (laughs) which (laughs) her father uh, points out and is annoyed about. Kitty is a minor character, and yet there's so much we can learn from her because there are many kitties in the world, many women and men who live seemingly in the shadows of other people, following others on social media, commenting on lives that aren't theirs. I mean, is Kitty in this way a modern day fan? I mean, Kitty is so interesting because I think that you're absolutely right. There's something like the moon, I guess, about her, right? Like she only shines when other people's lights are shining. And Kitty definitely is someone who I would say is maybe the way to think of it is like a backup dancer to Lydia. Lydia Mm. is like the leader and forges into a lot of mischief and like really destructive mischief. And I think Kitty simultaneously gets wrapped up in that in a negative way. But I also think she benefits from Lydia's star burning so bright and then falling. And so I think maybe what's most interesting to me about Kitty is that her fate is entirely tied to Lydia's, but Lydia's fate is not tied to Kitty's. And that I think is something that we can all relate to where it's like, oh, I think about this person more than they think about me. Or I feel like one way that people talk about it now is like they take up more real estate in my head (laughs) than I take up in theirs. It connects again to something else that you write in your book, Brain with Jane Eyre. You talk about how you love the idea of sacredness because you wanted to be called to bigger things, things that were outside of yourself. Isn't Kitty 
like that. Like she is, even though she's, you know, she's in the shadow of Lydia, outshined by everyone else. She is watching these others. She is observing life. She is wanting something bigger than herself and outside herself. So is there some way in which we could see this aspect of Kitty as, as something sacred? Oh, I love that reading. I just, you know, one of the things that I think about in terms of treating something as sacred is that it has to be complicated and it has to be generative. And Lydia, I love Lydia. And I think Lydia is a, a casualty of her time. And yet there's something so, I don't want to say profane about Lydia, but there's something so single-minded about Lydia that I almost feel like Lydia would be like a great cult leader, right? Like there's, I'm just worried that Kitty, if she is paying that kind of sacred attention, is putting it on a destructive thing that you can get really wrapped up in a community that ends up being a toxic community. What Lydia doesn't do is reciprocate anything back to Kitty. I'm not sure that she gives things back to Kitty. Maybe a sense of self insofar as like Lydia does confide secrets in Kitty, but I'm like very concerned that she's hitched her wagon to the wrong, the Kitty has hitched her wagon to the wrong ride in Lydia. That is very insightful. And again, it's just a testimony to Austin's art that she can suggest so many things through her narrative, through relatively minor characters who are part of this bigger story. And I love what you talk about in terms of something being sacred, especially like a text or a work of art based on how generative it is. And so there are works that we can read, you know, suspense novels or detective novels that, you know, were once and done and we don't go back to them because they aren't generative in this way. But of course, Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, these are works that are, that withstand and invite multiple readings because they are so generative. And to bring it back maybe to even just to fan fiction and, and the work you've done with Harry Potter, you know, I'm someone who tends to be a purist, I will admit. I can sometimes be annoyed by people who love Jane Austen because they just love the films and mm -hmm. they've maybe not even read the novels. Yet at the same time, there is something generative about fandom and about the different iterations of these great stories. Frankenstein is another example of something that's out there in the culture that's taken on a life of its own far removed from the novel itself. But can you talk a little bit about the way that social media, tweets, and fandom maybe have this generative aspect to them that creates community and maybe draws people to things outside of themselves? Bonding over a shared text can allow you to put so many other things aside. In my experience, fans First of all, fan fiction, I think, is like one of the great benefits of the Internet. I think people always wrote fan fiction, right? Like Jean Reese's novel, Wide Sargasso Sea, is essentially <laughs> Jane Eyre fan fiction. West Side Story is Romeo and Juliet fan fiction, right? Like right. we have been writing derivative and inspired texts in conversation with other texts for as long as we've been writing. However, having more people engaged in fan fiction allows for more and more radical fan fiction from perspectives 
that we would never think of. So there is fan fiction in the Harry Potter universe imagining what it would be like to be a disabled child at Hogwarts and how annoying it would be that the staircases are always moving and what kind of advocacy you would have to go through in order to make it so that the staircases stopped moving so that you could find your way to your room. And there's fan fiction that's imagining that problem into someone like Neville, who is very forgetful. And and I think that fan fiction just really allows our eyes to be opened to the original text, I think, in just such expansive ways. One of my very dear friends, Chloe Angel, sent me a meme of Gwyneth Paltrow playing Emma, writing a letter to Mr. Knightley. And it was right after it was in the middle of everyone's obsession with Hamilton. You know, those like 10 years when we were all obsessed with Hamilton. And she just wrote like the funniest thing, right? One week later, I'm writing a letter nightly, which is a line from Angelica in conversation with Mr. Knightley. And it was just this feeling of like Hamilton and Mr. Knightley and a woman's wish to sit and write a letter thinking of the man she loves and like collapsing these two things in ways that I find really refreshing. And I have to say, like the movie Becoming Jane with Anne Hathaway, I really like that movie. I do not think it is like objectively a great film, but I enjoy it a lot. And there's a joke in it about how Elizabeth only really falls in love with Mr. Darcy once she sees Pemberley. That completely shifted the way that I saw the novel, right? Like, maybe it shouldn't have. Maybe that should have been something that occurred to me before. But, like, I always read Elizabeth as falling in love with him in part because the maid speaks so highly of him, right? And she right. she gets these other pieces of information. But I love that reading that she's like, oh, my God, I could have been mistress of this house. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I find it very illuminating. Well, it turns out that Elizabeth Bennet is human right. as much as we admire her, right? No, that's that's definitely an aspect of how we could and should read the text. All of these um, generative and derivative readings, I mean, they, they do go back so far. Even the novel that's considered sort of the first English novel, Samuel Richardson's Pamela, produce so many spin-offs, so many unauthorized spin-offs and souvenirs and reading clubs and parodies. It really does go back that far at least in terms of of novels and the technology that allows these sort of generative iterations of them. So there is really nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean Homer, right, was just like curating Greek mythology. Right. This just like goes back thousands of years. I mean, it goes back to Gilgamesh, right? You could argue historical, critical Bible scholars, some of them make the argument that the Bible is derivative of Gilgamesh. So like God only knows how far this goes back. These patterns that echo the human condition and human stories and relationships, just they do go on and on because we are human beings no matter what time <laughs> and place. So just one final question that I think will be fun to talk about is actually sort of the opposite of fandom. And it has to do with Charlotte Bronte's famous criticism of Jane Austen. She wrote in a letter, I'll just quote a little <laughs> bit from the letter, and I, I just want to hear what you have to say in sort of a Jane off, <laughs> you know, yeah. so Austen versus Bronte. So 
Bronte lived about 30 years after Austin. And even though they seem like they're close in time to us now, those were really very different periods. Um, the Georgian period and the Victorian period were very different in a variety of ways. And so this is what Bronte had to say about Pride and Prejudice. She said to her friend, a fellow writer and critic, why do you like Miss Austen so very much? I am puzzled on that point. I had not seen Pride and Prejudice till I read that sentence of yours. Then I got the book. And what did I find? An accurate portrait of a commonplace face, a carefully fenced, highly cultivated garden with neat borders and delicate flowers, but no glance of a bright, vivid physiognomy, no open country, no fresh air, no blue hill, no bonny beck. I should hardly like to live with her ladies and gentlemen in their elegant but confined houses. <laughs> Who was right? <laughs> oh, I mean, Bronte is obviously wrong. I I always think of like Bronte writing, especially Charlotte, maybe with like a broad brush, like paintbrush and Austin writing with a scalpel. Jane Eyre is a shaggy novel. It's also a deeply gothic novel, which right. Austin would have held in contempt. Right. We right. know like Northanger Abbey is a a mockery of Jane Eyre that was written 40 years before Jane Eyre was even, <laughs> exactly. you know, a thought in Bronte's eye. Bronte was just a very critical reader in general, right? Like a lot of people argue that Jane Eyre is an admonishment of Wuthering Heights of her sister's great work of literature. Um, but it, it makes sense to me that Bronte would find Austin distasteful, right? She, Bronte doesn't like drawing rooms. You know, it's just like such a great description of what she doesn't like about it. It's the craggy moors versus, you know, the high hedges. What I think the missed opportunity is, is that actually, right, it just shows how Bronte wasn't necessarily a great first reader of a text. Yes. Right? Because Pride and Prejudice, like Elizabeth falls in love with Darcy, yes, because of Pemberley, but because Pemberley isn't like Chatsworth Hall and isn't overly manicured, but lets the wild woods grow a little bit. And, you know, Mary says, I think it's Mary who says, right, like, what are men to rocks and mountains? I think that there's actually like a deep affection for nature in Pride and Prejudice. There, you know, Lizzie loves long walks and Darcy loves that she loves long walks. And and there's a lot of mockery of the overly manicured paths. And so I think that Austin was potentially reaching out to Bronte and Bronte didn't quite receive the invitation. But they, they certainly have such different styles that I can imagine Bronte you know, just being like, ugh, this is annoying. There's also just such an intimacy and immediacy for the narrator in Bronte and Jane Eyre, whereas Pride and Prejudice is written from this like very intentional third person narrative. So yes, I understand why Bronte had the problems she had with Austin. And I think that she was a poor reader of Pride and Prejudice. Well, and of course, the gift to us today is the way that each of these novels complicates the others and offers us, by your definition, which I think is wonderful, an opportunity to engage in even more sacred reading by reading them against one another and against so many other great works of literature, which you have modeled for us in, in your work. I would be really interested. I just came across a letter from Charlotte Bronte 
to somebody, and I don't recall who, essentially saying that she regrets the way that she wrote Bertha, that she was too focused on making it gothic and she should have actually spent more time empathizing with Bertha as a person. And so I would love to know what Charlotte Bronte thought of Northanger Abbey or Mansfield Park, right? Which is where Austin is attempting to really reckon with slavery. Right. Yeah, I, I wish that Bronte had given Austin more of a try. Well, if heaven allows us to have tea with the people of our choice, then having one with Bronte and Austin and all of uh, their readers would be a wonderful discussion. It would be so illuminating and enlightening and very sacred indeed. I just got giddy at the thought of that. I was like, oh my God, imagine. (laughs) Let us imagine and and hope for it. I, I certainly do. Yeah. Oh, as do I. Well, Vanessa, it has been a delight. Thank you so much for praying with Jane Eyre and for your insights here. And it was a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me on. I will talk about any of the Bennett sisters anytime. Good books, just like people, are complicated. Treating a good book like a sacred thing, giving it time, attention, understanding, and love, despite what imperfections it has or what challenging questions it raises, is practice for treating people as sacred. And people, all people, despite what flaws they have or what challenges they present us with, are truly sacred. As Vanessa said in our conversation here, recognizing and embracing the sacredness of the other requires a radical act of the imagination. The imagination we use when reading or writing books or creating any art is the same imagination we use when we love another person, not because of what they can do for us, but simply because they are a person. As another novelist, Victor Hugo, famously put it, to love another person is to see the face of God. Jane and Jesus is a Soul Shop original, hosted by me, Karen Swallow Pryor. Our producer is Josh Cross, and our editor is Robert Scaramuccia. For more Jane and Jesus content, subscribe to our newsletter at janeandjesus.substack.com and follow us on Twitter at Jane and Jesus. Please leave us a rating and review and share it with your friends and family.